Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This podcast is for everyone seeking the details, context, and facts behind the banner headlines on immigration. It's the podcast that gives you the latest on immigration policy and politics and the real world impacts on the people and businesses that make our world turn. If you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group, guiding clients and their employees through the complex immigration system for over 20 years. Hello, immigration nerds. I'm Lauren Clark, senior attorney at Erickson Immigration Group. I am a fellow nerd, an immigrant, and host of this amazing podcast. On every episode, we're joined by the smartest nerds in the know as we cover trends in business, culture, technology, and politics at the intersection of global immigration. Today, we are going to introduce you to an author whose new book, Rivermouth, A Chronicle of Language, Faith, and Migration, focuses on the physical spaces that make up different phases of immigration and looks at how language and opportunity move through each of them. Coming up, my conversation with author Alejandra Oliva. But first, we start with a roundup of the recent immigration news that we should all be aware of. And for that, our news nerd-in-chief, Rob Taylor. Hey, Lauren. Hi, Rob. That's Rob Taylor, partner at Ericsson Immigration Group. What's in the immigration news feed today? Well, Lauren, we have a few things to cover, both on the U.S. and the global side. On the U.S. side, USCIS uh, has now expanded premium processing for employment authorization documents, also referred to as EAD cards, that are related to the F1 student who's in OPT or STEM OPT status. So for anyone who is currently on just OPT and has their application filed, they can request premium processing and get that EAD card approved within 15 days. So that's really important for them because they can now have a little bit more certainty around when they can onboard and start working in the U.S. For someone who has the STEM OPT, which again is kind of like the OPT extension uh, for individuals who are in science, technology, engineering, and math, those individuals can also premium process their employment authorization uh, document applications. It's not quite as important for these individuals just because they are actually able to continue in the process based on the receipt of their EAD, but it is good for them to be able to get the card more quickly. It helps with travel and just makes the overall process a little easier for them. We also have some updates on the H-1B cap registration process. So the registration was expected to close on March 17th at 12 p.m., but due to some USCIS technical difficulties, they have extended the registration period until March 20th at 5 p.m. So that gives some of those folks who might have been waiting till the last moment a few extra days to get their registrations in. We're still hoping that USCIS will complete the lottery registration process by March 27th, and we'll know by then hopefully who's been selected and who's not with the idea that folks can start filing their H-1B petitions on April the 1st, but we'll obviously keep everyone posted on that. And then lastly, on the U.S. side, on March the 10th, USCIS released an updated FAQ uh, entitled Options for Non-Immigrant Workers Following Termination of Employment. As we've discussed recently, there have been a number of layoffs within the U.S. over the last few months, and particularly within the tech industry, and particularly that has affected visa holders. Uh, This FAQ is kind of a welcome 
uh, thing because there was a lot of uncertainty as to how USCIS was viewing and would adjudicate certain aspects of the immigration process as it relates to the layoffs of non-immigrant visa holders. So this FAQ really helps better explain and define the 60-day grace period, portability options, change of status scenarios, and the new compelling circumstances EAD. So I'd really encourage folks to check out that FAQ and read it in whole. Uh, Links available through the EIG website, but you can also find it on the USCIS site. And then finally, on the global side, on March 15th, China announced after three years that it will be reopening its borders. So this is important. You know, a lot of our clients have offices in China and and really travel within China has been shut down ever since the start of COVID. So now Chinese consulates will begin issuing both business and tourism visas again. And this will really open up travel more broadly within the APAC region and is expected to also provide a pretty significant economic boost to the region. So this is a, a welcome development. Hopefully there won't be any retraction of this and things will maybe start to normalize a little bit with regards to folks being able to get in and out of China. That was the news with immigration nerd Rob Taylor. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Lauren. Now for a conversation with Alejandra Oliva, author of the new book, Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration. Alejandra graduated from Harvard Divinity School with a master's in theological studies and has volunteered as an interpreter and translator for those applying for asylum with New York's New Sanctuary Coalition and as a court observer with Boston Immigration Accompaniment Network. Welcome to Immigration Nerds, Alejandra. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It is our absolute pleasure. So to get started, you describe yourself as an essayist and embroiderer. And in doing my research, I've heard you describe your writing as sitting somewhere between journalism and memoir. What motivated you to undertake this work and write Rivermouth? So Rivermouth was born of all of these thoughts and feelings that I was having as I was doing advocacy work in immigration and sort of the places where it was sitting alongside my own story and either feeling like it rhymed or had assonance with it or that my own story and my own family story was very different. And then I think that it was also born of seeing all of these misconceptions, all these misunderstandings of asylum and immigration and all of the different ways that people sort of fundamentally don't understand what's happening at the border, don't understand really what asylum is sometimes. And so in writing the book, I wanted to both explain to people sort of what it was that I had been seeing and how it was different from a lot of the narratives that we get about who asylum seekers are, where they come from, what they want when they arrive in the United States. But a thing about journalism is that you are supposed to be theoretically this like very observant, just an observer, very objective, just kind of an invisible eyeball. And in something that was as personal as immigration, as language, it felt really important to tell people like, this is who I am. This is what my stake in this conversation is. And so that's why it sits kind of at that intersection between memoir and journalism, because it felt important to talk about the place where I was standing from and where I was seeing all of this and how it tied into my story and sort of what my stakes in this investigation were. 
And I guess your perspective is coming from this role of a translator quite specifically. I would really like to explore kind of what the role of a translator is for our audience. You write so beautifully in your book about the role and responsibility of a translator, especially in the instance of preparing asylum seekers on the southern border for their credible fear interviews. My sense, as you kind of just explained, is that that really was as much about compassion as it is about your own self journey. When you're talking about doing translation and interpretation, um, you are also supposed to have this very sort of objective removed. And that's true whether you're talking about like literary translation or whether you're talking about um, sort of this more interpersonal translation that happens when you're doing CFI prep or when you're doing uh, helping people fill out their asylum applications, which is the other really translation heavy work that I did. And I think that, again, it's this very imaginary idea that you can be objective when you're sitting across the table from someone and having them tell you about all these things that have happened to them. And then you have to sort of transmit it again in your own words, usually in the first person. And it's, it's almost a bit silly to feel like that doesn't have a personal impact on you and how you're feeling and, and what that means for you. And I think also sometimes in the reverse. So obviously an impact on you, but you're also translating, you know, to try and be removed from it, to not put your own spin on it in an individual who may not necessarily understand the question they're being asked to answer or understand the process that they're about to go through. Um, So as a translator, I'm sure there is that internal struggle between being that, you know, impartial voice but also making sure that you are providing a voice to an individual who otherwise wouldn't be able to communicate their story. Yeah. And I think none of the translation I did was ever in like a sort of court environment or in a very like strong legalistic environment. So I could sort of straddle the line between being an interpreter and being an advocate for someone if I could kind of tell from their body language or from how they were answering that they maybe hadn't understood the question. It was a little bit easier for me to step in and say, wait, hold on, we need to explain this better. Or I don't think they exactly understand what you're asking them. And so it was a little bit easier to sort of be a go between and in I don't want to say insert myself in the process a little bit, but just be able to be more of an advocate in addition to an interpreter. And I think that leads us nicely into throughout Rhythm Mouth, you remind readers what kind of nerd it takes to navigate the immigration at the southern border. In particular, you invoke form I-589, which is the application for asylum and for withholding of removal. And you introduce your readers to Myra and you write that it is your job to take her words and carry them across from the Spanish she has spoken her entire life into English. And so I think that leads us to ask, can you ever really fill the so-called boxes on a form enough to communicate all that needs to be shared from these people's stories and from their particular cases? That's a great question. And I I really don't think you can. And I feel like that is part of, I talk a little bit also in the book about this idea of bureaucratic violence. And that is this idea that 
someone's story has to be fit into uh, little boxes on a form and has to be sort of chopped up and presented in a very specific way, using sometimes very specific language to explain events that are actually really deeply traumatic or personal or individual, and that otherwise they maybe would not want to share with a government official or set down in writing in this very specific way. And so the form always feels like too much, like we're asking too much of someone to have to like bring all this up out of them, bring all this these details and trauma, but also like it's not nearly enough. And that if we're not asking for their entire story, we're just asking for the little bits and pieces that are interesting or like helpful to the government in some way. And I think that's a a really accurate way to kind of summarize what that process is like. We are asking them to relive a trauma that has led them to the situation of being at the southern border, applying for asylum, and then is what they're saying enough to fully, you know, reveal everything that they've been through to meet a criteria that is a category of check boxes, a very legalistic definition of, of what their asylum should be. One of the other beautiful things about your book is that there is a history that is included. And you look specifically at the practical impacts of the policies that are still in place now under the Biden administration that started under President Trump. And at the top of chapter 25, you quote U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris from a 2021 press conference she held with Guatemala President Alejandra Giamatti as she sought to find ways of deterring undocumented immigration from Central America to the United States. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur. But we, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration. And I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back. What did that press conference mean to you? And do you think that things are getting any better right now? Or is there a chance of it improving in the future? That press conference was meaningful, I think, because it showed the extent to which a lot of immigration policy is dependent on this future that will never actually happen. I feel like a lot of immigration policy right now is based on this idea of deterrence, of preventing people from wanting to come, from trying to come, making it incredibly or increasingly and incredibly dangerous, difficult, bureaucratic to come and then actually receive any kind of meaningful immigration relief. I think a lot of the dialogue that surrounded, even from, you know, that 2021 conference to the recent Biden administration's announcement of the immigration plans, that is kind of the post Title 42, is that it really does contradict the United States obligations under international treaties. One of the other historical parts of your book that was truly fascinating was using the analogy of the Rio Grande River or as it's called on the Mexican side, the Rio Bravo, um, that it's more than a physical border between two nations. 
It really embodies life and humanity and, as you point out in the book, has changed its path dozens of times since the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. And you explain in your book that your family knows this area well and has seen that border move around them over the decades. So can you tell us a little bit more about how your personal family story prepared you for the research and writing of Rivermouth? Yeah, so this is more my dad's side of the family than my mom's, but my dad's mother was born in Brownsville, Texas, which is right on the border, kind of the border that touches the Gulf of Mexico. And she, when she was about eight years old, my great-grandfather found a job in Mexico. Uh, He was returning from World War II, was having some trouble finding a job in the U.S., and so they ended up in Mexico. And the farther back you look in her family tree, especially, the more you see people, you know, born, one generation's born on one side of the border, one generation's born on another, just people crossing back and forth very openly, and as a matter of course, as a matter of life on the border. And if you think about that now, that is an almost unimaginable state of affairs for people to be able to just very easily go from one side of the other for jobs or for finding a family. And I think even up to my dad's generation, uh, my dad remembers, you know, being born in Mexico, growing up in Mexico, but going up to spend summers with his aunts and uncles up around the Austin area and just being able to, to cross that border much more easily and have a very different relationship than I think the relationship that I do, which is this very bureaucratic, very long, sort of messy thing. And like, I'm a US citizen, so is my dad. But even as a citizen, the border represents this really like hardened, really bureaucratic zone where you immediately feel under suspicion and you immediately feel like it's this very solid line that you need to pass through. And I think that's incredible that we're not just talking, you know, hundreds of years ago, we're talking, you know, your generational of your family line, you know, from your dad to your grandfather, and then beyond that kind of puts into perspective the time frame or the timeline of those changes and of the policies that we've seen kind of evolve over that time as well. I guess with all of that said about the book Rhythmouth, what is the goal or what is the outcome you're looking for from writing and then obviously distributing this book? I wrote this book both for a very wide audience, but also for a somewhat narrow one, which is, and the narrower one is for other people who grew up like me, who grew up bilingual, bicultural in the US, but maybe did not find themselves politicized by that until later or more recently and suddenly realized that this place that had felt somewhat welcoming or somewhat open to them was now a little bit more difficult, but also not nearly as difficult as it was for many, many, many other people. And so my hope in writing it was for other people growing up in those circumstances to find this book, to read this book, to realize that these two languages are not just a way that you can talk to your family or access literature from another country, which are two things I love about being able to speak two languages, but also that it is a way to reach out to other people and to make your community bigger and to serve as like a foundational part of a solidarity with a wider community that might not be the one that you grew up with or the one that you are most familiar with, but can be part of a bigger group of people that you sort of welcome into your life or welcome into your your sphere of people that you care about. 
And I think the other side of that, speaking as someone who is an immigrant to the United States, who doesn't necessarily have the familiarity with everything that's happened with the U.S. border, it opened a world for me personally to really feel the impact of those stories and, and see who are the people that are coming across and, and what kind of this type of writing, this type of representation, and this kind of voice would mean to them. Um, and I guess I probably fall into the other category, not being that narrow group of individuals. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other people that the book is for or will be interesting to, but I think that as I was writing, it was as a way of talking to a younger version of myself or my siblings or other people that have this sort of narrower experience. And so then talking about the physical book itself, your writing is very evocative, but also the cover. It has a very distinct image with kind of this woven red line across, I believe it's the Rio Grande River. Could you tell us a little bit more about the intention of the cover? Yes, I absolutely love my cover. It is the work of both art director and cover designer Rodrigo Corral, and also an artist, Paula de la Calle. And she does all of these really beautiful sort of embroidered collages and does a lot with like printing things and onto canvas and like sewing them together into collage. And so when I saw her work initially, I was like, that's, that's it. That's the person that I think will see this book and both understand my own obsessions with embroidering and knitting and textile arts, but also will be able to see what the book is about and tie it into her own existing projects of thinking about diaspora and immigration and her own family history and sort of like really get the book. And so they sent me a couple of different versions of the cover and a couple of different sort of ideas that she had had in playing around with it. And immediately the version of the cover that is these two sort of sides of the Rio Grande that have been stitched together with red thread was obviously like the image that felt right for the book and the image that felt like what I was trying to say about the border and about immigration and the way that there is this gap and this space between understandings, between groups of people, between both sides of the border, very literally, but that there was work that could be done to knit them together and to bring the two sides of something together. And I'm just, I love that cover so much. I'm so, so happy with it. That's a beautiful way to describe what your book is through a visual representation. And it's so lovely to hear how that collaboration came about and resulted in a powerful cover for a very powerful book. Thank you. So as I came to the end of Rivermouth, Alejandra, I began to wonder what would be next for you as the author. And in particular, if you don't mind me reading, you write on page 274, you make a personal politics the same way you translate a text, the same way you write a book. You look at the world around you and there are things you notice and there are things that you don't. If you're lucky, you read the words of other people who have looked out on the world before you who have caught other things you didn't. You change your mind, change your actions, start seeing things you had been blind to before. This book is about immigration, but it's also about reading and rereading, going over passages in your life, pouring over someone else's words until you find your own life is irrevocably altered. And it seems obvious to the reader that your life has been irrevocably altered. 
What do you see for yourself in the future? Could it possibly include running for elected office? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Uh, I am not politically oriented at heart. I think that I am a writer and I feel like that is I went to divinity school, so I speak about things in terms of like vocations and callings. And so I feel like my calling and my vocation is to be a writer. And I think that there is obviously the work that politicians and policymakers do is critical. And that is the stuff that really like makes the changes on the ground often. But I also feel like art and artists have a really important role in bringing people into awareness and bringing people into an understanding of what the world looks like. Uh, Like I mentioned in that passage that you read, I feel like it is through encountering other people's words, it's through encountering other people's writing or the things that they're telling me that I started to really understand what was at stake when we talk about immigration and really understand what the issues were. So I think I am going to stay a writer for now, probably not run for public office, at least in the near future. Well, I am sure as a reader and for the individuals whose voices you represent, we will forever be grateful for Rivermouth and obviously for any future work that you do. Um, It definitely is important work. And you do it with such power in your words that we look forward to what comes next. Alejandra Oliva, author of the soon-to-be-released book, Rivermouth, a chronicle of language, faith, and migration. Thank you for sharing your experience and work with all of us on the Immigration Nerds podcast. Thank you so much, Lauren. And thank you to all you nerds out there listening. You can track everything going on at Ericsson Immigration Group at our website, eiglaw.com. And remember, if you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe and share and meet us right back here for another new episode of Immigration Nerds.